welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim White, Digital Editor, and I'm joined this week by Hattie Williams, Reporter, Madeleine Davies, the Deputy News Editor, and Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. Coming up this week, we're going to talk about Canon Andy Lines. He's the Gafcon Missionary Bishop to Europe. We're also going to look at Peter Tide ordinations. And lastly, uh, we have an interview with the Bishop of Jarrow, Mark Bryant, on what Sean Bean can teach the Church of England. But first, uh, Madeline, you had an exclusive interview with Canon Andy Lines, uh, who has just been ordained uh, in America as Gafcon's missionary bishop to Europe. Um, what did he tell you? So we talked through some of the practicalities of how this role is actually going to work. Um, he's already CEO of Crosslinks, which is an international mission society. He's also chair of the Anglican Mission in England and also chair of the GAFCON UK task force. So I was asking him on his return from the US what his schedule is going to look like. Who was he ordained by in the US? What kind of church is behind this? He has now joined the Anglican Church in North America which was the breakaway from the Episcopal Church and is aligned with GAFCON. So he has been voted into the College of Bishops there and was consecrated at Wheaton Chapel um, in Illinois with many members of ACNA present and also several of the GAFCON primates. And there's a huge number of people laying hands on him, um, too many for them to give me account of everybody that was present, but a large number of primates. Has there been any kind of reaction to this, um, either within the kind of GAFCON group or, or from those opposed to this? Obviously, it's been welcomed by um, GAFCON and by Amy. Um, you'll know that Justin Welby um, has criticised um, this move and has described it as a, a cross-border intervention and suggested that such interventions have always been opposed right back to the earliest days of the, the Universal Church. You put that criticism to Andy Lyons, didn't you? What, what, the, the Archbishop's criticism, what, what, how did he respond? Um, so he rejected this idea that it's a cross-border intervention. Um, his argument is that ACNA isn't part of the Anglican Communion, so thereby he's not crossing borders. Um, his broader argument is that bishops have always sought to meet needs uh, that are not being met, and that was the message that he returned to throughout the interview, um, that there's this huge need for the gospel, that it's not being met currently, and that he's been appointed to meet this um, this lack. How did he come across to you as, a, as an interviewee? He was very candid, very open. There weren't any questions that he um, refused to answer, so... Um, he told me, for example, that he has written to the Bishop of Southwark. He currently has permission to officiate in Southwark. He's written to Christopher Chesson and said that he won't minister without his permission, um, but that he'd like to carry on being able to preach, for example, in C of E churches, but that he won't be acting as a bishop within the C of E. He's very much going to be outside those structures. We had the consecration of Jonathan Pryke back in May as a bishop by the Reformed Evangelical Anglican Church of Southern Africa. How will his role relate to Andy Lyne's role? They have a connection already in that Bishop Pryke is a member of the AME executive. It's the Anglican Mission in England. Yeah, of which Andy Lyne's is chair. So they are already connected in that sense. And Andy Lyne's told me that he supported him, he welcomed his consecration he said that the main difference is that he will be operating outside CV structures and Jonathan Pryke's very clear that he's operating within them. So there is a distinction there. Did he say what exactly he thought the job would entail day to day? I think that's still being worked out. I think some of it's going to um, involve preaching. I think he also is looking to see how many churches are going to seek his 
Episcopal ministry. So how many churches who currently feel that the Church of England is not meeting their needs will approach him as this missionary bishop and say, can we come under your oversight? Can you be our bishop? And he, he very honest that he doesn't know yet how many that will be. We also talked a bit about the fact that his title is the missionary bishop for Europe and how much time he's going to be spending on the continent and which churches there might seek his oversight. And of course, there may be Scottish Episcopal church parishes who seek his oversight given the vote on same-sex marriage that was passed Yeah, so he was already um, in touch with various people in Scotland, so that's also a possibility. Obviously, the, the role was created sort of in reaction to that vote. So, yeah, definitely going to include some work in Scotland. And at the Andy Lyons consecration, there were two messages read out from Church of England bishops, the Bishop of Blackburn, Julian Henderson, and the Suffolk Bishop of Birkenhead, Keith Sinclair. Um, so the letter that was read out said that those bishops were praying um, for the gathering and they were praying for Andy Lyons. Um, it said that they'd met with him over recent years and it was good to know his heart for the gospel and the witness of the church. Of course, many, many pages in this week's edition are devoted to Peter Tide ordinations, as they are every year. Everyone ordained a priest or deacon in the Church of England is listed. And um, Hattie, you've been speaking to a few people who have been ordained deacon, trying to hear some of their stories and their journey towards ordination. Yes, I spoke to some fascinating people with vastly different backgrounds. For example, uh, Dan Brown, who was, or is to be ordained uh, deacon in Gloucester Cathedral on the 16th of July. He first was called to ordination um, after the 9-11 attacks. He prayed that God would send aid workers to Afghanistan to rebuild the community after the attack and ended up going himself. Um, and that was the start of a, a journey for him, which led him to ordination. I also spoke, interestingly, to Younghee Ko. And she's uh, from. She was born and brought up as a, in a Buddhist family, actually, in in South Korea. But then moved to England later on with her husband, who's now a reader at Southwark, which is where they worship. Um, and she converted to Christianity after meeting him. And she was saying that she, um, obviously, English was not her is not her first language. Um, but she felt called to to preach. And she says that this was a, a crazy situation. She couldn't imagine ever speaking to other people because, it, you know, because of the language difficulty. And uh, very fasc- fascinating about her, her family and so on, and her, her daughters and their relationship with um, her mother, who, who passed away in 2008. And that was when she kind of returned to this calling um, and then began the process, uh, first to become a reader, and then she felt that was not far enough and uh, that God wanted her to do more. And so she, she went for ordination. So another, another fascinating story. Yeah, great flavour, I guess, the diversity of people um, becoming priests and deacons over this summer. Um, you can read lots lots of other stories and see lots of pictures. Which parts of this week's edition of the Church Times grab people? Madeline. I was interested to read the back page interview, which this week is with Alistair McGrath, um, theologian at Oxford that I'm sure many people will be um, aware of. Written some amazing books and there's some really interesting answers to the questions that we put to him. I was absolutely fascinated by a feature by Rebecca Paveley, um, Call on Hold, which is uh, talking to five people who um, went through the discernment process, got to the Bishop's Advisory Panel, the famous BAP, and were then uh, not recommended for training after all. And it's a really quite raw experience reading about the pain and the shock and the disappointment of receiving this quite sometimes quite negative, harsh feedback and having their dreams uh, put on hold. Yeah, really worth a read. 
I just wanted to flag up the feature we have from Nell Goddard, which is her reflecting on growing up in a clergy household. She was on our podcast last week, um, so if you want to listen back to that, I recommend that. But we have some extracts from her first and new book for tips for clergy children and also for clergy parents as well. Some quite amusing anecdotes in there. Ed? Just related to that, we've also got a feature by Sarah Merrick, who writes for us regularly, on high-profile clergy children, such as Theresa May, Jon Snow and David Tennant. It's also a very important news story about Sea Sunday, which is a day organised by the Anglican charity The Mission to Seafarers, just to recognise the vital work that seafarers do. John Attenborough, Port Chaplain, is quoted saying that seafarers bring in 95% of the goods we need every day, from tea, coffee and chocolate to clothes, cars and the technology in your pocket, and they're people who really need to be supported. More than 4 million people tuned in to BBC One this week to watch the finale of Broken, an intense six-part drama focusing on a few turbulent days in the life of an inner-city priest, Father Michael Kerrigan. Writing in this week's Church Times, the Bishop of Jarrow, the Right Reverend Mark Bryant, argues that the programme is a challenge for the Church of England, and in particular for its focus on church growth above all else. Tim Wyatt spoke to him to find out more. I haven't actually seen any of Broken myself, but um, you paint quite a vivid picture of what the show is like. Do you think this kind of unrelenting, exhausting uh, kind of image of of the priestly ministry is an accurate picture of life for for Anglican priests working in the inner inner city? Yes, I I think it is. Um, And and certainly when I I talk to clergy, it is uh, is absolutely uh, unrelenting. Um, that doesn't <clears throat> that doesn't mean that there isn't joy in it, um, but it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's just unrelenting, hour after hour, day after day. You me- you mentioned that some people have said that broken should be used in kind of clergy recruitment. Do you think that would really help, or would it simply put people off if you kind of pull the curtain back on that kind of exhausting slog of of trying to trying to care for people as a priest? Well, I'm I'm, I'm an optimist, and because I think the great thing about ministry in the in the inner city, and you see this by and large in Broken, uh, is that you can make a difference. Uh, this may not be big and spectacular, uh, but you will make a difference in people's lives simply because you are there when, when they need you, when they need an ear, uh, you know, to talk to or, or whatever. So um, I, I also think that we need uh, perhaps to get back to the idea about challenge and ordained ministry. I think when I was, I mean, I've been doing this now for, 42 years in ordained ministry. Um, and I, I, I think one of the things that excited me 42 years ago was a sense of challenge and of going to uh, places that were tough, places that were difficult, places where you could really make a difference. Do you think the modern day Anglican vicar is, has lost sight of that? Um, let me, it's always a difficult one to, to answer. Let me just say um, that in the northeast, we find it very difficult to get people to come and work with us. And I think, you, you know, people can draw their own conclusions from that. Hmm. Do, do you think the, the broader Church of England fails to properly value ministry like this, which doesn't necessarily appear in stats or doesn't necessarily lead to new people coming to church, but as you say, still is hugely valuable? That is certainly, I think, what a lot of clergy who I talk to in the Northeast feel. Um, that they, they feel that because they're not 
growing their churches exponentially uh, because the conversations that they have, um, you know, in the supermarket, on the street corner, that that sort of stuff doesn't get into statistics. Uh, they just feel, uh, they feel a bit unvalued. Uh, and if I'm honest, I think on a really bad day, they wonder if there is still a place for that ministry within the life of the Church of England. Obviously, as you know, over the last few years, there's been this increasing drive from the national church institutions for uh, more spiritual and numerical growth, the whole renewal and reform uh, agenda. Do you think corners are being cut and less kind of productive ministries or less quote unquote successful ministries like the ones you mentioned are being abandoned because people are having to focus all their time and energy on on pushing up um, numbers in church? I think it certainly feels like that. That isn't to say that it's true, but that is often how it, how it feels on the ground. Uh, and so some clergy will say um, that, that we just had initiative after initiative after initiative. And I think sometimes uh, the people who produce the initiatives forget that, and I mean, I'm talking about the North East here, you know, we will have clergy who may be doing 40, 60 funerals a year, baptising 40, 60, one or two cases, 100 babies a year. Now, if you're going to do those carefully, if you're going to uh, pay attention to them, if you're going to pay attention to the relationships, uh, that that is very time-consuming. What, what do you think people in Church House or in... Uh in down south, as it were, could do differently to, to, to better support priests in, in the northeast feeling this kind of pressure. I, I think it's I, th I think that I think it's a both and. As, as I said in in my piece, uh, we are absolutely thrilled that we have this uh, HTB Thomas Crooks uh, uh, plant happening in Gateshead, um, and and that's going to be I think a real source of, of joy and of we we believe and hope of growth. Uh, within that that bit of the northeast, I think it's about a we, it's about a both and saying that we both need uh, the HTB plants, but we also need uh, the priests uh, like the one in Broken, uh, often who are prepared to be in communities for a very long time. Uh, people who know that um, if you're going to grow a church, this may take eight to ten years of relationship. Uh, there's a fresh expression which I know quite well uh, in Coventry, where I used to work, uh, where uh, there is the most amazing work being done with some of the most challenged families in the city and where people are coming to faith and they are exploring uh, Christian faith uh, in, in, in a very exciting and imaginative way. But the real thing about that project, which started off as Christian service with no strings attached. Uh, the point about that project is that it's eight, ten, in some cases, twelve years of relationship, eight, ten, twelve years of not giving up on people for whom life's very complicated and are sometimes quite challenging to go on loving. Uh, but it, it's when you do that over a period of eight, ten, twelve years uh, that often, quite unexpectedly, um, congregations begin just to happen because people want to learn more and they want to come together and talk about this. Do you think there is something then for the HDB network and its church plants to learn from the kind of less flashy or maybe less uh, spectacular ministry of, of churches just kind of doing that daily grind of building relationships over the long term? 
I, I mean, I hesitate to say that there's something for them to learn from that yet, that there possibly is. I, I think what I'm saying is that the Church of England needs to acknowledge uh, that there are perhaps a wider variety of ministries uh, than, than is, is, is it sometimes feels that they understand. I think one of the things that we've really learned and we've done stuff uh, in the diocese um, with, uh, you know, around uh, being intentional about growing, growing churches uh, is that I think there is a danger that in the past this very uh, missional model of ministry that you see in Broken has not been intentional enough. So we've not said, how can we use these uh, relationships and these contacts that we've made uh, intentionally to help people discover more about Christian faith and discover what it means to enter into relationship with Jesus. Mm. So I think there, I think there is stuff for the Father Kerrigans of this world to learn as well. Mm-hmm. So perhaps a challenge, like you said, to both sides to learn something of the other or take the best of each kind of stream or tradition and try and incorporate that into the other side of ministry. Absolutely, and, and we need to find a way in the church in which we say both of these ways of engaging with communities are important. Uh, and both of them uh, need to be valued and encouraged. Just lastly then, you mentioned this new church plant that's um, starting in, in Gateshead and um, and kind of the excitement that some people in the diocese feel. Um, over the last few months, I don't know if you're aware, we've, we've covered quite a lot of uh, stories, had some letters in from people around the country who've also experienced HGB church plants coming or kind of grafts into existing churches and sometimes uh, thrown up tensions with with existing congregations or parishes where people feel like HB has come in and, and kind of rolled over what was already there and some of that was really good stuff that was already gone has got slightly squashed. Do you think that's a danger for the Gateshead plant? Are you confident that the people who are coming in with this plant uh, are only going to uh, build on what's already happening in Gateshead and the broader diocese? I, I mean, it, it, it's very early days. They've been with us less than a year. I do think there are ways in which we can look at, at how the people in the plant can be of service to local churches, uh, not to take them over, um, but people come with particular gifts and skills around children's work, around uh, youth work. Uh, and, and I hope we can look in the coming months about how those skills are shared out in different communities and with different churches, both in Gateshead and further afield. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.